reading this evening is from Revelation chapter 14, reading at verse 14 through to chapter 15 at verse 4. Revelation chapter 14 at verse 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, and the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest and the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its images and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Well, let's pray together as we uh, look at this passage. Lord God, you, your word is like gold. That's what your word tells us. And uh, we ask that you would reveal to us that gold this evening as we look at this passage. Would you help us to treasure your word, to know how precious it is? And would you speak to us this evening? Uh, would you tell us of uh, your goodness to us, of your character, of the acts of your son, the Lord Jesus? In his name we pray. Amen. What's the world coming to? Maybe you've heard someone say that recently, or maybe you've said that yourself recently. What's the world coming to? It's the kind of thing that we say when we look at our politicians, bless them, or when we look at our social media feeds, 
or our newspapers. It's the kind of thing that we say when we're despairing of what we see going on and we're concerned about the trajectory that our society is headed in or our world is headed in. But what if we could know for sure what the world was coming to? What the trajectory of the world is? Where we're headed? What will happen in the end? I guess some of us might think that the world is just going to get worse and worse and worse. Some people might think that. I guess more people might think that in 2020 than they did in 2019. Lots of ancient religions taught that that was the case, that we were sort of on a downward trajectory, we were, we were descending into chaos. But perhaps, I guess, most of our modern society would expect that the world will get better and better and better. Lots of modern people believe that. They believe in human progress, that this world will continue to improve through education and through healthcare and scientific advancement, technology, all, all sorts of things like that. Which is it? History's heading somewhere. We know it's heading somewhere, but where is it heading? Well, the book of Revelation wants to answer that question for us. It's been showing us the world's behind the world, the real, real, the spiritual reality of the things that are going on in our worlds at the moment and throughout history. We've learned that it's been focusing particularly on that time between when the Lord Jesus came the first time when he was born into this world and that time when he'll come the second time when he returns at the end. And what we've seen particularly in the last few weeks over the few chapters in chapters 12 to 15 is that one of the things that's going on in the world, the spiritual reality of what's going on in the world, is that there's a worship war happening. We've been taken behind the curtain to see that Satan and his beasts, and we learned that they are the corrupt political powers and the, and the religious ideologies of this world, they are seeking to draw the hearts of men and women after themselves and away from God. That was chapters 12 and 13. But then, as we got into chapter 14, we saw that something else is going on, that the, the messengers of God, that is the angels of God and human beings who love the Lord Jesus are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus to the world, that they are seeking to win the hearts of men and women to worship him. What we saw at the end of chapter 14, where we got to last time, is that this war for the hearts of men and women is drawing to a close, that the end is coming. And the vision begins to focus in on where we are headed, the destinies that await this world and humanity. What's the world coming to? Well, that question's about to be answered for us in this passage. But not just in this passage. Throughout the scriptures, Christianity has taught that all of history is heading to one fixed point in the future. That it is coming to a day, to an hour, to a moment, a moment of decision, a moment of judgment. And Revelation 14 and 15 reveal that hour to us. They teach us, these chapters, in some wonderful and terrifying images. 
that at that moment, at that hour, every human being that has ever lived will be gathered into one of two eternal realities. Either we will be gathered to eternal worship or we will be gathered to eternal wrath. Now on the service sheet that you've got, you'll see there's some um, points as we go through uh, which lays out the, the thread of this passage. Verse 14 to 16, we'll see the gathering of the redeemed from God's wrath. 17 to 20, the gathering of the rebellious for God's wrath. And then chapter 15, 1 to 4, the gathering of the redeemed to God's worship. That's where we're going. So verses 14 to 16. We're going to see there and in the next bit some harvesting. Now, the concept of harvesting has kind of left our, uh, our consciousness in this country um, for most people. There are a few sectors of society that still is still a fu- function of their lives every year. Farmers, of course, get this. And one or two other industries like uh, vineyards or orchards or hop farms, things like that, they still understand this. It's a big thing every year to gather in the produce when it's ready part of the yearly cycle. And there'll be some rural communities where this is still a big feature of uh, their year. But for most of us, it's just become so efficient, this process, that we don't really mark the season of harvest at all. Um, I don't think our kids do it in school anymore. I did when I was at school, but I don't think our guys mark the harvest festival. We used to. But really, because you can just get what you want whenever you want it. You can go down to the supermarket, you can pick up your strawberries, you don't have to wait till summer. You can pop down the corner shop for a loaf of bread or a few cans of lager or a bottle of Chateau Neuf de Pap or something like that, whatever you, you want. Uh, you can get it whenever you want. You don't have to wait till the season, till the season of harvest. You can get it straight away. But to ancient communities like the people that John is writing to, harvest is a huge deal every year. And it's a huge deal because of the long wait that's involved. You just think of the work that's gone into it. You have to prepare the ground to begin with. You have to sow the seed, then you fertilize it, you water it, and you get a bit of growth. But that's a tense time because you're concerned that the crops will be ruined by famine or by um, locusts or by storms. You're anxious about that. But as the year goes on, you see these crops, they start to change color as they ripen. And you anticipate that the day is coming soon when the owner of the farm or the vineyard is going to say, now. He's going to give the signal, now. Now's the time to bring it all in. And the sickles will begin to swing. In our passage, there are two harvests pictured More specifically, actually, there's a harvesting of two different things. Uh, Verses 14 to 16, there's a harvest of what we presume to be wheat or barley or something like that, a crop. I'm not explicitly told what it is there, but the the word for ripe there in verse 16 is a a specific word for that kind of uh, crop. It's a different word from the word ripe that you get in verse 18, which refers to the grapes. There are two kinds of produce, two harvests, And we know from the context of this part of the letter that this harvesting is going to take place in the time of the end. That's the context here. But we're 
left to work out what these harvests symbolize. So let's take a look at them. What's going on? Well, John, in verse 14, he sees a cloud. He looks to heaven and sees a cloud, a white cloud, and on the cloud is sat one like a son of man, wearing a golden crown. And we're familiar with that image. It's an image of uh, the book of Daniel, chapter 7. It's an image of God's king, God's Messiah, the one whom God chose and the one whom God gives his authority over to, the authority over all the nations of the earth. It's an image of the glorified Jesus whom we've met in Revelation. And Jesus, we see, is that he's, he's got a sickle in his hand, a sharp sickle. An angel comes out of the temple from God the Father's dwelling place and brings God the Son a command. Verse 15. Put in your sickle and reap. Cut down the harvest. Reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. The Father has announced that the hour for the harvest has come through his angel, and the Son obeys his commands. He puts in his sickle and he reaps the earth. But what is it that he's reaping? What does it represent? Well, there are a few places we could go to to help us understand that. Matthew's Gospel is probably the most helpful place here, Matthew 24. That's the passage you may, you may have remembered where uh, the Lord Jesus talks about the hour of judgment that only the Father knows. In that passage, he also says this in Matthew 24, verse 30. There will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. See, Jesus spoke of the Son of Man gathering. Gathering. What's he gathering? He's gathering the elect. The elect are gathered when the Son of Man comes on the clouds. Those who have faithfully, faithfully trusted in Jesus, those who have been redeemed by Jesus through faith in his death, they are gathered to him from the earth when he returns. Now, why are they gathered to him? Well, they're gathered to him because of what happens next. If they were not gathered to Jesus they would be in grave danger because the terrible wrath of God has come. The redeemed are gathered from the wrath of God, but the rebellious will not escape it. And that's the second harvest. Verse 17 to 20. It's a horrifying scene, verses 17 to 20. It's terrible, it's terrifying the wrath of God is displayed. Now the orders for this harvesting come from the same place. They come from the temple, the dwelling place of God, verse 17. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle. 
Okay, so two angels. One's got a sickle. The other comes from the altar, and we're told that he's the one who has authority over the fire. Now, that's a, a little detail for us. Uh, if you can remember where that angel's been seen before, I'll be very, very impressed. Um, it features in Revelation chapter 8, the angel of the altar. In Revelation chapter 8, verse 3, this angel is the one who collects the prayers of the saints. Maybe you remember that. He collects the prayers of the saints and he collects them in a golden censer. The prayers of the saints in that passage are the cries of those suffering for Christ. They're calling out to God. And those prayers are precious to God. He collects them. And in that scene, the angel then, what they do with those prayers is they collect some fire from the altar, put it into the censer, and then hurl the the burning coals uh, down upon the earth in judgment. This angel is the one who enacts God's judgment upon the earth against those who have opposed God and his people. And he's doing the same thing here. He issues the command from God that the grapes are ripe for the harvest. Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. And again, the sickle begins to swing. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. The Grapes of Wrath. If you ever wondered where John Steinbeck got his book title from, uh, here it is, The Grapes of Wrath. Now, I don't know if anyone's ever made their own wine. Um, It's something that people do. But if you haven't, and you haven't haven't done it in the last couple of thousand years, uh, two couple of thousand years ago, to make wine, what you did is you got all the thousands of grapes um, that, from your vineyard and you threw them into this great vat, this vast kind of container, uh, into the wine press. And then you got some servants and you got them to jump into the vat and they would stomp around on the grapes to crush them. So that the juice of the grapes would flow down to the bottom and then out of a vent uh, from the bottom out um, to be um, made into wine. Now, John's familiar with this image. This is what he sees taking place. But just look closely at what he sees. There's a couple of little interesting things that happen. This this press is situated outside of the city. That is, it's outside of Jerusalem. And what flows out of the wine press is not wine. But in a picture of horror, it's blood. It's a river of blood flowing five feet deep for about 200 miles. Now the commentators have noticed in this that 200 miles is about the length of the land of Israel from end to end. It's really quite horrifying. The land is drowned in a sea of blood with the exception of the city. What's going on? Well, this part of the vision has 
two Old Testament passages particularly in view. Uh, one is Isaiah 63. We're not going to turn to that one. Um, feel free to look that one up. The other, the other passage is Joel chapter 3. And if you've got a Bible, uh, it'd be great to turn there. If you've got one on your phone, please do feel free to use that. Uh, Joel chapter 3. If you can find Joel, you're onto a winner. It's buried in the middle of uh, the Old Testament prophets, about two-thirds of the way through the Old Testament. Um, But Joel chapter 3, I'll read it to you, but if you can follow it, that would be great. If it helps, it's around about page 800 in uh, my Bible. Joel chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. Behold, this is the Lord God speaking, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, who's one of Israel's kings, of Judah's kings. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land. Now the name of the king that's mentioned here, Jehoshaphat, is one of the best names in the Bible, isn't it? Jehoshaphat, it's good, it's good to say it. Uh, the name's significant. Uh, the Valley of Jehoshaphat isn't a, isn't a literal place. You can't point to it on the map. So this is telling us something about the kind of valley. And the word Jehoshaphat means the Lord has judged. There is a gathering of the nations into the valley of the Lord's judgment, into the valley of the king's judgment. That's what it's saying. And then later on in the prophecy, uh, from verse 12, uh, let me read that to you. Listen, listen for the similarities that you hear in this passage with what we read earlier in Revelation uh, chapter 14. So Joel 3, verse 12. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, the valley of the king's judgment. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. Do you see how close it is to Revelation chapter 14? It really helps us understand what's going on in Revelation 14. That on the day of judgment, the day of the Lord, when the Lord Jesus returns, he gathers his people to himself, into his city, into his refuge, his stronghold. And then outside, in the valley of the king's judgment, the multitudes, every single person who has rebelled against Jesus is gathered together and crushed in the winepress of his wrath. And their blood flows for their evil is great, says the Lord.
what is the world coming to? It's coming to this day, to this hour, to this moment. When a decision is made over the eternal destiny of every human being. And while many will be gathered safely to Jesus, multitudes upon multitudes will be crushed under his terrible wrath. And that is a just end, for we have rebelled against the king. Now that, of course, should force a question into our minds. How can I escape this fate? Can I enter the refuge when the wrath of God is poured out on the land? Is there a way out for me? And there's only one answer to that. The only way out is the cross of Jesus Christ. What we need is someone who will bear the wrath of God in our place. What we need is for someone to take the just punishment that we deserve upon themselves. What we need is someone whose blood flows outside the city so that ours may not on that final day. What we need is a substitute to bear the wrath of God in our place. And that is what the cross of Jesus Christ is all about. At the cross, for all who trust in him, he takes their sin upon himself and he pays the price for it. He is crushed for our iniquities. His blood flows under the press of God's wrath instead of ours. All so that we can escape on the day of judgment. Through the cross, Jesus provides a refuge for all who place their faith in him. And so can I urge you that if you have not yet placed your trust in Jesus Christ, that you do so today. Trust in him and find refuge when that day comes. We've not quite reached the end of our vision. Come back with me to Revelation 15 if you've turned away. Revelation chapter 15, uh, verse 1, is a transitional verse. It kind of interlocks what's been gone before with what's coming after. Um, Scott's going to be preaching on Revelation 15 next week. He'll pick that up. Let's look at verse 2 to 4. There's a little bit of unfinished business from the first harvest. We saw in that first harvest that the redeemed were gathered away from uh, the wrath of God that's coming. But, But what exactly... Where exactly did they go, and what exactly did they, uh, were they gathered away for? For what purpose? Well, John's been gazing upon the earth. He's been looking at what's happening on the earth. But in verse 1 of chapter 15, his eyes lift up. He looks to heaven, and he sees the, the seven angels and the um, seven plagues which are coming. But then he sees something else. His, his gaze is distracted to something else. What he sees is the gathered people of God. 
Verse 2. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Now, do you remember the Exodus story? God's judgment fell upon Egypt, who had enslaved Israel, and it it, it took the form of several plagues. The last of those plagues was a plague upon the, the firstborn sons. It was the death of the firstborn sons. But God sheltered his people from that plague by the blood of a lamb, by a lamb sacrificed in their place as a substitute. The blood was painted on the doors of the house, And when the plague came, the Lord God, in his judgment, passed over that house. The blood protected them. Then in the story, Israel left Egypt. They all got up and left with all of their things, all of their families. And they passed through the Red Sea. The sea parted, they walked through on dry ground. And just as they were getting to the other side of the sea, Pharaoh and his armies pursued them. They chased them through the sea. Israel made it safe to the far shore, but the sea collapsed back in on Pharaoh and his armies and destroyed them. And then on the beach by the sea, in chapter 15 of Exodus, Moses leads the people in a song, a song of salvation and of God's victory over their enemies. This is what we see Here, John is seeing in heaven a new Exodus story. God's people, the ones who were featured earlier on, who were gathered to Jesus, are now seen in the heavenly throne room beside the glassy sea. These are the ones, we're told, who have stayed faithful. They didn't compromise with the world. They overcame, they conquered And by the sea, what are they doing? They're singing. They have harps in their hands and they sing the new song. They sing the song of the redeemed, the song of Moses and the Lamb. They are gathered from eternal wrath to eternal worship. And this is what they sing. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty, Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Having come through the great trauma, the great troubles of this world, They stand on the eternal shore safe. And notice what they sing. They can now look back on the trouble, back on the battle that they've faced and come through, back on the war that was. And all of a sudden, they can see what was going on. They can see what the king had been doing all along. They sing of his great and amazing deeds. They sing that his ways are just and true. They sing of his righteous acts because they have been revealed for what they really are. 
See, in the middle of the war, it's very hard to sing, isn't it? You don't know what's going on. It looks like a big defeat at times. But when you get through to the other side, you say that's what was going on. The Lamb has won for us, and he's brought us safely through. Let's praise him, all you nations, for he alone is holy. This is what we're being taught, that having stood firm, having stayed faithful to Jesus, not compromising with the world, that when we get to the eternal shore, on the other side of the war of this earth, it will become clear what's been going on. It will make sense. And we will sing for joy. And we'll be doing that for an eternity to come. The people of God, rescued from wrath, brought to worship, will play and sing of the King and his great and amazing deeds. Let's give thanks to him as we pray together now. Lord God, as we look at a passage like this one, we do so with some fear because of the horror of what your wrath looks like. Well, we know that that is by rights what we deserve. And we also see that with sadness too, as we know that there are many people that we know and love for whom, if, unless they turn to Christ, this will be their destiny. So, Lord God, with all those thoughts in our minds, we do give you such great thanks for the Lord Jesus Christ and his cross, that he has, by his death, paid the price of our sins and made a way of escape for us. Oh, Lord God, we thank you that we can be forgiven, that we can be brought safely through to your kingdom. And Lord, we give you thanks for this wonderful vision that we finished with of of we as your gathered people brought into the heavenly throne room singing your praises about all you have done for us. And so we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.